We are continuing uh, our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. And tonight we come to what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. And as that was being read, perhaps you heard some sort of familiar things to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, I, I think you had some of that this morning, so uh, might be some overlap here slightly. And uh, some scholars think that this was actually the same sermon, just reported slightly differently. Uh, it, it was a long reading. I do apologise about that. Um, uh, I'm planning to do a bit of an expository talk tonight. So I'm planning to do verse by verse. I think we'll be done by about ten past eleven or quarter past or so. I hope not. No. Uh, we're going to look at some of the big themes from this passage tonight. And uh, as we come across those... They may be slightly different from what they appear to be on the outside. So we'll we'll have a look at that in a few moments. But as we begin, um, I've been reading a a couple of books recently that uh, have been out for a while now, uh, over 50 years, and I've only just got around to reading them. And I reckon that there's some people here who've probably read them. So the first book I read fairly recently was The Cross and the Switchblades, David Wilkerson. Uh, The second is Run, Baby, Run by Nicky Cruz. Hands up, anyone read those before? Yeah, quite a few, excellent. Well, if you haven't, I would love to encourage you to read it. Uh, It will really stir you in your faith. I thought they were both incredible books and they're true stories. And uh, they're describing life in New York in the 1950s and 1960s, and especially gang culture. And around that time in New York, there were lots and lots of different gangs who occupied different areas in New York. Um, Some people think that at one time there were over 6,000 gang members in New York. And uh, in this book, or in in these two books, they look at life in the 1950s and 1960s in these gangs. And these gangs would fight each other, and they'd be fighting over what they called turf, territory. So one gang would be in charge of one bit of area of the city, and another gang would be in charge of another bit of area of the city. And sometimes one gang would try to take another gang's turf, so they'd fight. Sometimes it was to do with uh, women. Sometimes it was to do with drugs. But life in New York around this time, especially in the back streets of New York, was not pleasant. And David Wilkerson, the writer of this first book, uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, writes this about life in New York in the 1950s and 1960s. He says this. The enemy lurked in the social conditions that make up the slums of New York, ready to grab lonesome and love-starved boys. He held out easy promises of security and freedom of happiness and retribution. He called his promises by innocent names. Clubs, not murderous gangs. Pot, not narcotics. Fist jumps, not anger-filled, unsatisfying sex stimulation. And jitterbogging, not a desperate fight to death. He built his victims' personalities that were almost impossible to reach. He threw around these boys a wall of thick, protective hardness. He made them proud of being hard. And uh, one of the most famous of these gang members was the leader of what was known as the Mau Mau Gang. And his name was Nicky Cruz, the writer of the second book, 
This is uh, Nikki. This is Nikki here. And uh, in Nikki's second book, he, or in, in, his, in his first book, should I say, um, he speaks about an experience that happened, kind of that he did really uh, during that time. And he speaks about a time when he and his gang is uh, in his part of the city, and an Italian boy comes and walks in the area. And as this happens, he and he and his gang uh, circle this boy and they push him to the ground. And Nicky takes out his flick knife and points it at this boy's Adam's apple, taunting him. This boy then slaps the knife out of Nicky's hand, and before Nicky knows it, another of his gang members has picked up the knife and has slashed this boy in the face. They then turn him over, pull off his shirt, and slash an M in his back to represent the Mau Mau gang. And for this book, this is a fairly mild story. Eventually, uh, Nicky goes to an evangelistic meeting, something completely outside of his personality, completely unexpected. And uh, David Wilkerson, the writer of that first book, is the preacher. And Nicky finds himself doing something just completely not him at all. There's a ministry time at the end when uh, they invite the Holy Spirit to come. And Nicky finds himself weeping. And somehow he ends up going to the front to be prayed for. And in his book, he writes this about that experience when that happened. He says, tears and laughter. I was happy, yet I was crying. Something was taking place in my life that I had absolutely no control over. And I was happy about it. Suddenly I felt Wilkerson's hand on my head. He was praying, praying for me. The tears flowed more freely as I bowed my head and the shame and repentance and the wonderful joy of salvation mixed their ingredients in my soul. Happiness, joy, gladness, relief, freedom. Wonderful, wonderful freedom. I had stopped running. All my fear was gone. All my, my anxieties were gone. All my hatred was gone. I was in love with God and with those around me. I even loved myself. The hatred I had for myself had turned to love. I suddenly realized that the reason I treated myself in such a shoddy way was I didn't really love myself as God intended for me to love myself. And Nikki went on to head up this incredible ministry in New York that reached out to hundreds and hundreds of uh, ex-gang members and other down-and-outs. And it was in that moment, as Nikki is kneeling at the front of this auditorium, when David places his hand on his head, that suddenly Nikki sees himself for who he really was. And he sees himself as God saw him. In his gang, he had to put on this mask and pretend to be this super hard person. In fact, he wanted to be harder than the rest, so no one could touch him. No one could come near him. And in this moment, as he receives prayer, suddenly he sees himself as a broken, vulnerable boy. Someone who needs love 
who needs mercy and grace and forgiveness, and all from God. As, not, as Nicky sees himself for who he is, and as he sees himself as God sees him, God's able to use him to accomplish some amazing things in the city of New York. And in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is encouraging his followers to see themselves for who they are. As this happens, as they see themselves for who they are, it points them outwards so that they can love not only their friends, but their enemies as well. If you could turn to that passage, that would be great. And we're going to follow along together in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 49. Luke 6, 17 to 49. Just to put this passage into a bit of context... Uh, we're still very, fairly early on in, uh, in Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel. Uh, Jesus has been baptized. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's been sent to the desert where he's been tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he's returned from the desert and he goes to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And he teaches in lots of their synagogues. And he prays for lots of people and sees them healed of lots of different illnesses and uh, diseases. And then he chooses his 12 disciples. And that's when we arrive at our passage today. And so by this point, Jesus is a known person. People know who he is. They've heard about his reputation. Seemingly from nowhere, this man has appeared who, when he speaks, has authority. This is a man who prays for people with power so that they're healed. And as crowds gather around him, they want more. They want to hear what he's got to say. And they want to be healed in the same way that many people around them are being healed by Jesus. And uh, as Jesus sees these crowds, he begins to speak to them and he says... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now many of these people that Jesus is speaking to here know what it is to be poor. They know what it is to be hungry. And they know what it is to weep. Life isn't easy for them. But Jesus continues. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Now I hate to say it, but most of us are probably part of the second category rather than the first category compared to many people in the world. We heard about Sudan 
is happening all over the world. When Jesus says here, woe to you, it's actually as if he's saying it's regretful. It's a real shame. He's saying these words with compassion. This isn't a threat. But nevertheless, is Jesus really saying it's a real shame that we're rich because we've already received our comfort? Is he really saying it's a real shame that that you've got enough to eat because uh, you're going to go hungry? Is that what Jesus is saying here? I'm not quite sure it is. I think it's fairly true that often we do have enough foods to get by and we often probably do have enough money just to get by perhaps. But I actually think that what Jesus is saying here is more like wake up. Wake up and open your eyes. You who think you're rich, you are in fact quite poor. You who think you're well fed, you're actually empty handed. Open your eyes. You think you can see, but in fact you're blind. Jesus has compassion on both these groups here. But to those who think they have nothing, who realize they have nothing, Jesus says to them, you may be poor, but you understand what it means to be dependent upon me. This is life in my kingdom, Jesus says. This is what it means to be one of my followers. He says, you may be poor, but I have compassion on you. And Jesus is not saying here that one social class is somehow superior to another social class. Jesus is not saying that just because these people are poor, that that automatically means that they're more blessed than people who are rich. I actually think that any of these people who were poor at the time would have jumped at the opportunity to be able to exit this cycle of poverty. What I think Jesus is saying is that in reality... You are all poor. I think he's saying you share one common humanity and you're all in need of me and you're all in lack. In all truth, I think those of us who perhaps do have more than others find it harder to accept this because we have less needs to be dependent on God. I think those who don't have so much materially They don't have as much option. So Jesus urges his followers, whether materially rich or materially poor, to see themselves for who they really are. All in need of God. All in need of forgiveness. All in need of God's love. And as they do this, Jesus says, that uh, they're to openly uh, acknowledge their brokenness, to see themselves for who they are. And I think in the world we live in, in a world that's obsessed by image, that's becoming increasingly difficult. On Friday at YF, I spoke a little bit about the fact that we live in the Instagram world. We can be whoever we want to be online. Just have to put a few filters on my pictures, and I can be perfect as far as the world's concerned. I can put pictures on Facebook about going out for meals with friends because I want people to think that I have a great life. But I don't want to show you the bits of my life that I struggle with. 
I don't want to show you the bits of my life that actually I don't like about myself. Those bits I want to hide. I want to pretend they don't exist. Either that, or they'll just be this shameful secret that is kind of just eating away at me and eating me alive. But Jesus says, come to me just as you are. In your brokenness, in your imperfections, just as you are, I love you and I accept you. Bring that to me. Going back to Nicky Cruz, it's as he's knelt there at the front of this auditorium with David's hand resting on him that suddenly he gets this, he sees it. He sees himself for who he is, broken, imperfect, but loved. And he's filled with love as that happens. And God can use him to do amazing things. And one of the reasons I think God wants us to be able to see ourselves and accept ourselves for who we are is because that then impacts how we relate to others. In verses 27 to 42 of our passage, Jesus goes on to say some radical things. He says, don't just love your friends, but love your enemies. And uh, don't just love your friends, but love your enemies too and do good to those who hate you. He says, don't judge and you won't be judged. He says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. He says, if you've got a massive log in your own eye, don't point out the speck of dust in someone else's eye before you take the log out of your own eye. And I think that one of the reasons that Jesus longs for, for us to see ourselves as who we are, warts and all, is because when we recognize the brokenness in our own lives, we'll be slow to judge the brokenness in other people's lives. Nicky Cruz when David, when David Wilkerson first started reaching out to him, slaps David in the face and spat at him. Nicky said that he would kill David, and he was the sort of person who probably would. But David wasn't ignorant of his own brokenness. He knew what was going on in his own life as well. And uh, in uh, David Wilkerson's biography, the writer of that biography tells a story of a time that, they, that he was walking through the park with David. And David just suddenly stops in his tracks and says to this person, Jim, just imagine, one day I'll die and someone will probably write a book about my life. They'll paint a picture of some super spiritual giant of faith who never battled with sin and Satan like everyone else. How ridiculous. David knew the brokenness in his own life, perhaps slightly lessened by the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, but there nevertheless. And he knew the impact that brokenness can have on our lives. For Nicky, it manifested itself in horrendous violence and lust and hatred. For David... In his biography, we find out that actually he struggles to accept that he was loved. And because of that, he ends up overworking and at one point it threatened his marriage. 
David could love Nikki because he was aware of the brokenness in his own life. When Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, to those people he's speaking to, this would have sounded ridiculous, unthinkable. They're living in a place under Roman oppression and the Romans would be hated and opposed, maybe even hurt. But to love them, what's Jesus going on about? We don't live under Roman oppression and uh, we don't live in occupied territory, thank goodness. But there are people in all of our lives who we struggle to get on with. And maybe these are people who have hurt us in the past. Maybe these are people for whom we still have issues with now. And at times, to love those people and to forgive those people may not necessarily mean the continuation of a relationship. But to love those people and to accept those people and to forgive those people does mean to see them in the light of who we are. To see them in the light of what Jesus has done in our own lives. To see our common humanity our common brokenness and our common need for Jesus to come into our lives and to change our lives. It's because deep down we're made of the same stuff. We're all capable of hurting others and being hurt. That we have a brokenness deep within us that Jesus wants to come and heal and restore And it will be a constant journey until finally we meet Jesus face to face. And when we see ourselves for who we are, and when we see others for who they are in the light of who we are, Jesus' desire is that he will be able to transform us into something more. That we give him permission to transform us into something more. And in verses 33 to 49 of our, of our passage, Jesus says that ultimately the fruit of your lives will be determined by the source of your life. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And in the next little bit, Jesus goes on to give an example about uh, what someone's like who listens to Jesus and acts on what he hears. He says, they're like a man who builds a house and digs a deep foundation on rock. And Jesus says that uh, just as Jesus accepts us and loves us for who we are, he also desires that we would give him permission to come into our lives and to transform us into something more that our lives would increasingly reflect his life. And whilst there will be aspects of our lives that will always be broken, if we give Jesus permission, the Holy Spirit will transform us through that 
step by step. As we make Jesus the source of our life, slowly the fruit of our life will also begin to point to Jesus. I think Jesus is saying to us today that he wants us to be able to see ourselves for who we are and for how he sees us so that in light of that, we can love others too, always allowing him to transform us into something more. Shall we pray together?